I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Neil Harvey, a professor in the government department at NMSU, specializing in the politics of Mexico and Latin America, particularly the role of social movements in the struggle for democracy and new forms of political representation. Today's interview will focus on the political dynamics and history of the drug cartels of Mexico and countries to the south. So Neil, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we delve into today's topic, please tell us about your background and some of your personal history as it pertains to your field of study. Sure. Well, I am from Liverpool in the United Kingdom. At school, at middle school and high school, I studied languages. They were my strongest subjects, I guess, and Spanish was something which I felt that I could use. Uh, I wanted to travel. I wanted to learn about the Spanish-speaking world. And at that time, for undergraduate students, there was one really exciting new program that had been created at a place called Portsmouth Polytechnic in Latin American studies. And what was unique about it was that it guaranteed a year abroad, a study abroad year in Mexico. This was out of an agreement with the Mexican government to exchange students um, that had just been established. So one of my friends, uh, who's a year ahead of me at high school, had gone to this program and had said good things about it. And I thought I'm going to apply there rather than some of the other options offered a couple of months in Spain in the summer. And the content also of the program appealed to me because it was about contemporary issues in Latin America. Uh, whereas the other programs tended to be uh, more focused on longer histories and the humanities and, and literature, which was interesting to me, but I was really fascinated more by the political and sociological and economic issues occurring in that region. So I was able to get into that program, and before I knew it, I completed my first year, and I was a young 19-year-old uh, in Mexico City at the one of the largest universities in the world, the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, the UNAM, uh, taking classes and learning firsthand about things we've been reading back in Portsmouth. After finishing that program, uh, the study abroad, I went back, of course, finished up two more years as an undergrad, and then went on to the University of Essex, also in the UK, to do my master's and then a PhD in government with a Latin American concentration. And that program helped me understand much more in political science and comparative politics of Latin America. And it allowed me to do field research for my dissertation in the state of Chiapas, the southernmost state of Mexico on the border with Guatemala. And I did that field work in 1986 and 1987 for the most part, um, a few years before the Zapatista rebellion of 1994. And so when that occurred, I was able really to write and publish a lot of my work, which put that rebellion in context of the kinds of struggles of small farmers, of indigenous peoples, of poor rural communities in Chiapas for defense of their lands and for democratic rights. From that point on, I started you know, to work in academia. I had a, a couple of visiting positions and in 1994, I uh, came to New Mexico State 
as an assistant professor in the Department of Government where I've been ever since. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just curious, in your field, it seems like it would be pretty, pretty hard to be a kind of a neutral observer of things. Like it's, it seems like it would be pretty natural to have a point of view and have a, a kind of a judgment about what's right and wrong. I mean, particularly if you're studying a, a, a portion of the population that's being oppressed. And how, do, how do you kind of straddle both sides of that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's one that anybody in academia has to recognize as something that they have to deal with. Um, I don't think there's anyone who can claim that they're completely neutral on issues of importance. Otherwise, why study them if they're not mm -hmm. so meaningful to you? Um, I, but I think there are ways in which you can look at different sides and different perspectives and produce a more realistic, more nuanced account of what are, in the end, quite complex issues um, without that watering down the kinds of arguments you think are most valid and most necessary to make. So in my own case, for example, I think working in Chiapas and getting to know personally people in communities who have been arguing for many, many years for respect for their land rights, as well as for the respect for the leaders that press these land rights and often face repression, imprisonment, harassment from the authorities, obliged me as a graduate student and ever since to do the best I can to tell their story and the ways that would make um, something of a difference to how those issues get portrayed in the broader public. So I think that happened with the Zapatista Rebellion, the initial response from many people who didn't know Chiapas in 1994 was that this was instigated by non-Mexicans, outsiders, uh, terrorists even, and none of that was true. And I knew that for fact because I'd been in the area for many years beforehand and I'd seen what led to that rebellion as people who'd had enough of poverty, of repression, of corruption, and their peaceful efforts for change had run into even more mm -hmm. repression and persecution of their leaders. So I was able to write all of that and get it out and I wasn't the only one. Of course, there were many others in the field um, journalists particularly who were familiar with the situation and I think what happened was the rebellion in Chiapas gained a kind of legitimacy for the demands maybe not for the methods because after all it was an armed uprising in 1994 um, but at least for understanding why people would be so desperate as to risk their lives in confronting the Mexican military in order to achieve these what are really basic rights for for people who've been denied them mm -hmm. because of their ethnicity or because of the social class so i think uh, the kind of work we can do in a university can have these positive impacts in changing people's perceptions and that just requires sticking at it you know doing the job with the resources that we have available mm -hmm. and not staying silent I have just one more question before we launch into the main topic, and I hope this is an okay question to ask. That what's it like to be studying Latin America and Mexico 
as an Anglo, and in fact, not just an Anglo, but an Anglo-Anglo, because you're, you're actually uh, British. I, I get asked this uh, quite a bit because I think in the United States there's much more, because of proximity, particularly to Mexico, yeah. I think much more of a infrastructure in universities to study and to do research and, and spend study abroad in Latin America. But there's also in the UK and Europe, I think since the 1960s, that grew with the establishment of several Latin American studies centers and programs around the country, including at the University of Essex, where I ended up doing my graduate work. So it wasn't you know, a particularly strange phenomenon or uh, marginal. Um, a lot of work in the UK has been done in the area of development studies. And there's a good overlap, I think, between the sociology of development and critique of Britain's own role in colonialism and mm -hmm. in the continuation of what we might call neo-colonial economic global capitalism in which British interests and corporations still play a big role. So there's plenty of area for, I think, British students to get interested and involved in Latin America. Is there an advantage in some ways of being an outsider to the, to the culture or, or at least a newcomer to the culture? I was, I was told that uh, quite frequently by people in Chiapas, both in the rural communities and other colleagues and academics there, that they said, you know, you're, because you are not from the area, you can give us a, maybe a different account of what we see and what we perceive that we've grown up with, this reality around us. And that can be quite useful for us. And I imagine there's a certain level of, of credibility if the story is coming out both by people from the area and from people outside the area. I'm not sure I want to use the word translate, but it's, it's a different slant. And it's uh, maybe, for some people, maybe it would be more re receptive at, at, at times. Yeah, in a way that I'm not entirely comfortable with, the outsider perspective or writings and publications can have some kind of extra weight in the way that local colleagues of mine do great work can get their work dismissed for yeah. obvious political reasons. And that is something that I think we've seen. Um, but we work together, we collaborate. I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful for the kinds of collaborations I've been able to establish. Well, let's move now into the main topic, which is the cartels of Mexico. What's the extent of it? How bad is it? I think it's a very bad situation. It's one that's been growing, hasn't been resolved, and doesn't like, look likely to be resolved in the short term. There are some important initiatives for a more longer term solution. But just some figures, because after all, when we're talking about the cartels, we're talking about victims of cartel violence as well. You can't really talk about the cartels as uh, just um, any other kind of social actor. Since 2006, the figures now that there are at least 85, that there's an official count, 85,000 people who are disappeared or unaccounted for. Uh, since 2006, over 300,000 people have been killed. This in relationship to the operations of the cartels and the lack of investigation from the Mexican government authorities into those killings and into the disappearances, which has led many families of the victims to take it upon themselves to search for their loved ones. 
something which um, different parts of the country has revealed uh, the even greater extent than what we knew of the killings as clandestine graves have been unearthed. This is a huge problem. The current president came in in 2018, Andres Manuel López Obrador of the Morena Party, on a campaign which included, as you might expect, to bring an end to this kind of violence. But under his administration, things have not improved greatly. Uh, last year, there was a slight decrease in the number of homicides from around 35,000 to 34,000 in the year. But that is still even higher than what had been the peak in 2011 of 22,000 in the year. And at that point, I remember 10 years ago, uh, especially here on the border with the violence in Juarez, we thought this can't get any worse, but unfortunately it has. The main difference I think now is that it's spread, not f so the violence isn't solely concentrated in places like Ciudad Juarez and Chihuahua State as we were familiar with around 2011-2012, but now it's spread to states further south and for example in Guanajuato which you know many Americans may know because it's just a beautiful place to visit as a tourist. San Miguel Allende has a huge population of American retirees. Uh, Guanajuato capital of the state is a home of beautiful colonial architecture, fantastic university. Um, but th that state now is one of the most deadliest in Mexico for cartel related violence. Um, the state of Jalisco, um, as well, the state of Mexico, which surrounds Mexico City. Um, all of these places which 10 years ago had not been on the map as far as cartel presence and violence are certainly on it now. So that's a big kind of development that cartel violence has spread more broadly throughout the Republic. And just to throw in a couple more statistics, I mean, we think of the U.S. as being an exceptionally violent country for a modern country, and Mexico is far more violent per capita. And I've also read that it's the most dangerous place in the world to be a journalist, that if it's particularly if you're a journalist covering cartel violence, I mean, it's really dangerous. Yeah, that last point is one that is often, of course, mentioned by journalists themselves and human rights defenders. We can't really know the extent of the problem without people conducting investigation and research. And so anything that gets close to uncovering those truths is running into cartel violence and I think often government complicity, either at the local municipal level where cartels have fully infiltrated government or through simply the lack of protections and investigation into those um, those killings. There's an excellent book which I'd recommend to you and to our listeners called The Sorrows of Mexico. The Sorrows of Mexico. It was published I think in 2015 or 16 if I'm not mistaken so it's a few years older now. And the, the author? The main author is Lydia Cacho. C-A-C-H-O. It's a collection of writings by Mexican journalists. Mm -hmm. about their craft and how they have been living work during the period from 2006 to about 2014 uh, when this violence became so prevalent. And so there are many case studies including the disappearance of 43 students at Ayotzinapa and Guerrero State in the south of Mexico 
that occurred in 2014. Um, an essay by Annabel Hernandez, another really important author. Much of her work is now translated into English, so for non-Spanish reading um, members of the audience, I'd recommend looking up Annabel Hernandez and her work. But The Sorrows of Mexico, I used it in class in the spring semester. It was really hard to read, um, so it comes with a bit of a, a warning in that it's not pleasant, but it has to be said, the kinds of abuse and human rights violations. So it's it's gra graphic, graphic descriptions of what happens? Yes. Uh-huh, I see. Including the torture of people detained and charged with crimes in order for the government to say, well, we resolved the, for example, the disappearance of the 43 students in Ayotzinapa, which created a lot more in international attention at the time. Uh, that still hasn't been resolved. But the government, within a few weeks, had said they claimed they had um, arrested the real culprits and that they had signed confessions, that they were responsible for these disappearances. And the government invented a whole story they called it the official truth or the historical truth la verdad historica and the architect behind that uh, who was heading up the security apparatus at that time man by the name of Ceron, he was identified by annabelle hernandez and her writings and her independent journalistic investigation uh, her interviews with people who had been detained as exacting confessions through the use of torture so the government could claim the issue had been solved and we could all move on the families never accepted that version and the new government hasn't accepted that version either but uh, Zeron fled in 2019 i believe he fled mexico because he knew that he could be arrested for his role in this huge tragedy and falsification of evidence and condoning or ordering the torture of suspects. And actually, Saron is now in Israel hmm. trying to get um, asylum, asylum, claiming he has been uh, the victim of persecution by the Mexican authorities. Mexico is trying to get him extradited to stand trial in Mexico. So that is also a part of a you know, bigger international and, and issue. This just happened in the last few weeks, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Uh, whether or not he'll be extradited or not is also a matter of political negotiations that are probably mm -hmm. still ongoing behind the scenes, as far as we know. But for the families of the victims in Ayotzinapa, as well as the families of the victims throughout the country of the 300,000 dead since 2006 and the 85,000 unaccounted mm -hmm. for the disappeared people, they won, I think uh, it's best summed up by two words, truth and justice. And they're not going to stop in that effort. I don't see them backing down. And mm -hmm. there is a strong political movement now, a social movement, not really political parties, but a social movement, to call for Mexico to establish a national commission for truth and justice. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, you know st statistics alone often is not the the ultimate catalyst for these kind of things, but it's one event that's really grabs everyone's attention and, and, and not just nationally, but internationally. I'd like to move on now to talk about how and why the drug cartel started and developed in Mexico. So how, how did it get so bad? How did it get started and how did it get so bad? Well, I think for most of the period when 
the cartel started in the 60s and 70s uh, their main drug that they were trafficking was marijuana for the Mexican authorities this didn't present a huge problem to Mexico and there was enough collusion that corrupt officials would turn a blind eye if they received a payment from the cartels. So there was something of a, a cozy relationship there. The, in the 1970s, Mexican investigative police were more focused on repressing social dissent and particularly a certain number of uh, armed guerrilla movements that were active as was the case throughout Latin America in the 70s and those security forces were really not under any scrutiny certainly not from the general public but even from government institutions about what they did and so they had a practice of disappearing suspects who may have sympathized with the guerrilla organizations or independent social movements that were critical of the government and many of these cases have been recounted and I've done some research on this myself I can show later but the point I'm getting at is that as the focus of investigative security apparatus in Mexico in the 70s was not accountable to the judiciary or to civil society but simply operating according to its own on whims as it were there are many cases of um, disappearances and torture of political opposition members what many people refer to as Mexico's dirty war certainly wasn't on the scale as Argentina's dirty war under the military dictatorship in the 70s or Chile under Pinochet but still it had similar features but what it meant as far as the drug trade was that that could grow in a way that was not clamped down on. In fact, it was allowed to grow through collusion and certain sectors of the military favored differing cartels as they got paid off and played one off against another. What happened though in the 70s is interesting because the United States under, particularly with Nixon, when Nixon became president in the late 60s, adopted a policy called the war on drugs so for the US well at least for the Nixon administration and the supporters of that administration and then every administration ever since the problem has been addressed as as the title of that campaign suggests as one of security and almost a militarized response a war a war on drugs and so that, that just provided resources to Mexico, or to the Mexican government, to, of a military type, in order to conduct this, this effort to eradicate drug production. And what that did was to push trafficking into even more areas of the country and to promote uh, this illegal trade as drugs were not going to be legalized anytime soon. It's only very recently that we're talking or seeing this mm -hmm. at all, even on some drugs in the United States, just some states. 
very limited but the the bulk of the effort from the u.s government which the mexican government and the mexican military embraced were all these resources for the war on drugs so i don't know if this is accurate but my impression is that mexico got involved in the marijuana trade early on but that the so-called harder drugs like cocaine was more coming from colombia and other places and that mexico was the conduit to the for, tra for transporting them particularly after the reagan administration started to really target the uh, Colombia, make it more difficult for drugs to enter in other ways, like for instance through the Caribbean. Yeah, that's right. Towards the end of the 1980s, the interdiction of the entry of those harder drugs through Florida and the Caribbean side of the country led the, those uh, cartels from Colombia to work in alliance with the Mexican cartels uh, Mexico became the preferred uh, route and that meant that these cartels became more powerful, that the money generated became greater, their ability to traffic what was the most lucrative kinds of drugs in terms of economic benefit and demand in the United States uh, was much greater. So the Mexican cartels became less kind of a more regional and locally based, like the Sinaloa cartel, as the name suggests, was just from the state of Sinaloa, became much more of a national and then a transnational organization, which it still is today. But that's right, after really the end of the 1980s, we see the cartels in Mexico growing because of the kinds of operations they were getting mm -hmm. into. And the, the other part of the dynamic, two, two other parts, is one is that the U.S. demand for drugs is so incredibly high. I, I think it's the highest in the world per capita, probably both for prescription drugs and illegal drugs. And so the, the uh, profitability factor is, is always there. And, and the other factor being that Mexico has an even, actually much worse maldistribution of income compared to the uh, United States or other industrialized countries. And so there's a very big incentive, I think, to get into the drug trade because it's very hard to make a living. Yeah, it became harder to make a living in Mexico, I think, after the implementation of what we know as neoliberal economic policies, which tended to deregulate the economy, cut back on government programs and spending in things like education and investment in, in smaller farming and small businesses. Um, as NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, came into effect in 1994, Mexican producers, particularly in rural areas, small farmers, were simply unable to compete with the influx of cheaper corn and other products from the United States. And that led to several problems. Um, one I mentioned earlier was the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas. Another has been out-migration, particularly from rural areas, um, headed towards the United States. And another has been, as you just mentioned, um, the ability of cartels then to recruit from poor communities, both urban and rural, young people without much of, in the way of prospects for their economic future, into some aspect as working for the cartels in the transit of these drugs. It's estimated that, this is a couple of years ago now, but the last estimate I saw was around 450 to 500,000 people in Mexico are involved in some aspect of the drug trade, the illegal drug trade. 
So it's not just a few bosses here and there um, that dominate, or they do dominate, but they employ large amounts of people. And this again goes back to this would take some, at least a generation to revert that. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but that is really the main challenge of how do you create other opportunities for people coming into the labor market that are uh, more in tune with their own aspirations and not subject to dependency on, on the drug trade. And I've read that, uh, speaking of the Sinaloa cartel, that, that uh, El Chapa Guzman is actually a revered figure by a lot of people, that uh, he's... I mean, I'm sure that all the cartels are brutal, but it's not as brutal as the uh, Los Setas, which is, I guess, the second biggest cartel. And that because of the, the employment, and he's, I guess, maybe better at image management, <laughs> but there were pictures of him up, and you know, he, he's kind of like a father figure in parts of Mexico. Of course, that's not, I'm sure, not a universal <laughs> feeling. And so there's some, some of that, that even though they're brutal toward other cartels and the competitiveness of that, uh, that they also have infiltrated into everyday life. Yeah, they grew up. It was really the first major cartel um, to be operated, and they emerged from the communities themselves. Clearly, very violent and and dangerous for the health of all concerned. But they have this uh, aspect of providing some. I'd say I'd still say limited, so we shouldn't over overstate this. But some of the functions that we might expect of the, of a government of, a, of the Mexican state, um, but particularly, I think the cultural aspects are really fascinating to see how um, this aspect of an outlaw, of a someone who is chased down by the authorities, who escapes again and again from prison, mm-hmm. is something that resonates enough that helps explain why the Sinaloa cartel at the local level has been able to continue and perdure for several decades. In contrast, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Los Setas. Los Setas didn't emerge from any kind of community network at all, but instead the Setas were originally trained as members of the Mexican military of a group known as the, in Spanish, the GAFES, or these are air transport special forces, special ops kind of types, trained in the United States, used in trying to put down the Zapatista rebellion in Chiapas, used in putting down a peaceful social movement protest in Oaxaca in 2006. Um, those are, that this is documented. They split from the military, several elements of those people who received that military training, both in the United States and in Mexico, special ops, and formed a separate cartel which fought against the Gulf Cartel of Mexico on the eastern seaboard of the Gulf of Mexico for control of that eastern seaboard and northeastern Mexico up to Tamaulipas. And so the Setas have no kind of sense of connection to community in the way that some of the Sinaloa folks may have in their own violent and idiosyncratic and mafia-style way. 
Instead, they operate as purely paramil I would call them a paramilitary force. Because now they're, they're not part of any government institution, but the, what's really dangerous is the, the boundary, boundary between official and unofficial, legal and illegal use of force within the military, the police, and the cartels is being broken down. And so the satis are the people who are mostly responsible for the most heinous and violent crimes. The discovery recently of um, extermination camps in the state of Tamaulipas on the northern border of Mexico, where remains of people have been found who've been burned, who've been uh, buried in these mass graves. That's the work of the setas. And the setas are not just involved in drug trafficking, neither Sinaloa either, but all of the cartels have branched out into extortion and kidnapping, robbery, all kinds of charging businesses to even operate in what they deem as their territory, to enter their territory, setting up roadblocks, charging fees, to be able to have a marketplace and, and such things. So the status dominates territory and people as well. And it's all uh, a type of instrumental violence. It's not, there's nothing random about it, really. It's, it's in order to uh, achieve a certain purpose of gaining more and more control, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, uh, it's terror. And they know that they've been able to operate this way because of the lack of response from Mexican authorities or investigation into their crimes, the collusion that occurs. And that is really the, a very dangerous, violent um, situation, which, by the way, with the expulsion of people seeking asylum in the United States, they are sent back to wait in Mexico in these very same places and become prey to those cartels for extortion, uh, for kidnapping, and for being used in their businesses. Yeah, it's one of the more, I think, galling aspects of the refugee crisis is that uh, I, I'm pretty sure the way it's, the laws are set up here, that to, get, to gain political asylum, you have to be targeted by the foreign country's government. Well, what if the government is so weak that the major powers are actually non-governmental, or cartels, for instance, and that doesn't count because it's not the government, <laughs> even though they are the government in a way, because they're buying either, either through intimidation or bribery, they're largely in control of the government, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. There needs to be reform of the asylum policy completely. I think under the Trump administration, there was an attempt to stop any asylum from anywhere being claimed. Almost succeeded. Right now, the Biden administration, I think, is slowly doing some things, but very slowly and very contradictory. I see more continuity than break, unfortunately, mm -hmm. on this. So there needs to be a push from, I think, American society. And there is a lot of work in this region from volunteers, from uh, church groups, um, legal service providers to try and provide a path for those asylum seekers, which, after all, are not breaking any laws. They're seeking asylum. It's in the international law. It's ratified yeah. by the United States. And yet they're still being either deported to these very violent situations we've just been talking about or being detained in terrible conditions 
in ICE detention centers and yeah. right within our own midst. And of course, the uh, pandemic situation just complicates the whole thing. I mean, uh, I would imagine. Yeah. It, it has, um, in, I think, in two main ways. One is that um, in, when the pandemic broke out, I think the Trump administration saw as this golden opportunity to stop any migration coming in at the southern border and use something known as Title 42 from the CDC, a public health order, to say because of the pandemic, we're just closing the border. And that Title 42, I think, has to go. There's a really, the main public health problem for migrants is living in this limbo on the Mexican side of the border and being prey to the violent cartels. There are many community organizations here, including public health agencies, who argue that people can come in, they can be tested, and uh, we can control the flow of people in a way that's more humane, and would overcome this nightmare where people are fleeing violence in the home communities further south in Mexico, or in northern triangle countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and being then caught in similarly violent situations, often with the same cartels, the setas are down south and they're on the border as well, without being able to ever aspire to simple basic safety. The US can do better, it should do better, and can provide that. Yeah. But it's caught up by the political calculations and electoral calculations of state governors like in Texas right now, or in the midterms that are going to come up how this will play out but i think there's a lot of good work being done that often doesn't make the news on a day-to-day -day basis as i mentioned by uh, community groups advocacy groups mm -hmm. it just needs a bit more of a push in order to recognize asylum as a human right so before we uh, launch back in i'm just curious if you personally feel unsafe traveling in Mexico and what precautions do you take? Yeah, it's more unsafe now than when I was doing my field work back in the 80s, even though then I was going into very remote rural areas where there had been quite a bit of history of, of violence. Um, but now it's more, I guess, pervasive in just kind of day-to-day -day activities in cities and in transport. <laughs> So, for example, simply going visiting family outside of Mexico City, catching a bus from the airport to the town where they live uh, a couple of years ago, having fear that the bus could be assaulted on the way, which happens quite frequently. Just a roadblock and then shaking down everybody. Yeah, um, people uh, may do that by throwing a rock at the windscreen of the bus as it's traveling along just to make it stop, make the driver stop and then assaulting the, the vehicle. So people really have to be careful of where they're going and when they're going. My protections, I guess, are by being with people I know, friends, family, colleagues, uh, of not going into areas that have um, been recently an area of, of you know heightened violence or danger and you know checking beforehand of course you know those, those situations but I don't think it should stop people from going and particularly if your work is in the line of doing research or 
uh, working with colleagues or journalism and so on, it still has to go on. But precautions have to be, be taken. I mean, are there safe places to vacation in Mexico? Sure, yeah. That, that's also part of the problem, though. Um, you know, we have the enclaves now where they're heavily policed and it's um, possible to go to Mexico, but at the same time to not be in Mexico, if you know what I mean. You'd be with mostly uh, foreigners, Americans. Mm. Um, there's a nice beach, a hotel, but around it and surrounding areas, Mexicans are facing a very different reality. And But yeah, I think um, parts of the country are still open for tourism. Um, and it is a beautiful country, a beautiful people. It's such a tragedy what's been happening. I think anybody who's traveled as a tourist can appreciate the warmth and hospitality of Mexican people, the quality of the food, the culture, the music, and the art, the popular crafts. It's something that living in our border region, we appreciate simply by crossing to Palomas or to Ciudad Juarez or as far as down as Chihuahua and Creel when it was a bit safer to do so. All of that is still present, but it has to coexist now with this other side to to Mexico, which unfortunately mm -hmm. is is very present. Now how does Central America fit into the picture? Because uh, we know that the uh, in the past it was mostly Mexican immigrants and refugees, and now it seems to be at least temporarily mostly from the Northern Triangle of Central America. Why is it that it's coming from there, particularly? Yeah, that's true. I think there's been a real increase in Central American migration since around 2014. Several factors there is the expansion of these drug cartels like Los Zetas into Central America. The violence that that produces, uh, people fleeing the threats to their lives from gangs, which may involve in some cases, you know, the, the actual killing of siblings or parents or members of families and the threat that will happen to you if you don't work for our gang on, on these terms. So that is something which has been happening in the past 10 years. Another has been the impact of climate change, droughts in areas that previously would allow for subsistence farming and productive farming oriented to the domestic market for the most part could allow for people to stay on the land and make a living. Uh, those climatological conditions have changed quite radically in the past eight to ten years. And a couple of major hurricanes and climatic events are seen by most as triggering outmigration of larger scale. And that is a big concern because that also is a ongoing issue we would expect that to be continuing year to year um, getting worse. As, it's ha as it's happening mm -hmm. in the US or, or yeah. many parts of the world right now so mm -hmm. people have to go somewhere and there's very little left it within the agricultural sector in those three countries that you mentioned of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador to do so Another, of course, is the persistent poverty, which is related to those first two factors, the lack of economic opportunities and the, um, the crisis of uh, rural agriculture. One of the ironies is that uh, people are fleeing the cartel violence, but in order to flee, they're often going for 
help being smuggled in by the cartels <laughs> so that, you know they're being targeted left and right that's right and that's really the only way anyone without um, documentation legal documentation can enter the US used to be I'm not sure how long ago this started to change probably in the 2000s that uh, migrants were mainly adult males looking for work fleeing unemployment and poor wages and finding seasonal work in the US uh, for which there was no legal path to do so but still it was an option employers in the US would be fine with that and so there were kind of smaller scale coyotes who would find the right ways to cross or were to cross between the more heavily policed urban centers um, but that evolved into cartels really taking over that and it was the cartels who had the knowledge of the increasingly fewer and fewer routes to cross this desert and mountainous border this is another great contradiction or paradox of all of this that one of the outcomes of the United States war on drugs since the early 1970s has been to strengthen the same drug cartels that it's supposed to combat. That these cartels now are in control of the trafficking of people as well as drugs and they've become more consolidated as the smaller scale mom and pop traffickers have fallen away or have lost business or have been absorbed or killed by the larger cartels. So you see the consolidation, I think, of these larger, yeah. more violent, unaccountable cartels like Los Cetas. And in good measure, thanks to the policy of the war on drugs. Yeah, let's let's talk more about that. Uh, I mean, the war on drugs has been incredibly expensive. I think cumulatively, it's about a trillion dollars in the last fifty years, and it really ramped up. I think during the Reagan administration, the, uh, I read that the FBI drug enforcement units went from an eight million dollar budget to ninety five million dollars. I'm just an incredible increase. I, I'm just sort of wondering though about the demand side of things. Will the not just the legalization, but the legal growing of marijuana in the United States, which seems to be really taking off. Will that have an effect on the cartels of Mexico, which I think still the marijuana is the number one drug in terms of money, or will they just try to increase demand for other harder drugs? But it seems to me that it, that might be hard to do, you know, to really make up the, the difference. Overall, I think it has something of an impact. Um, it's going to reduce uh, the shipping of you know, certain quantities of marijuana. But by now, it's a bit too late. I think it's too little too late to make a huge dance on the operations of the cartels and the demand for other drugs, um, which cartels have moved into. And it also responds to this problem we were saying earlier that the root of the violence of the cartels is also to do with the lack of investigation of crimes and of being able to control the spread that either through commission or omission 
Mexican government authorities have really allowed the cartels to sustain themselves and grow regardless of which drug they're trafficking and what the market demand is in the United States now they've moved into extortion I think this is part of it perhaps um, unfortunately that certain parts of the United States legalized marijuana okay the cartels are like, well, we can't start with marijuana anymore what are we going to do next okay let's um, just uh, kidnap our local folks here or migrants who are totally vulnerable have no claim on rights that they can enforce and make money off them so they're kidnapping migrants making the way from Guatemala for example getting the phone numbers of their relatives that might be in the United States saying hey we've got so-and-so here if you don't pay us X thousand dollars by this time tomorrow they're dead you know this is happening and and they're they're when they get the ransom money if they get the ransom money they're releasing them in order to or, or no because if, if they no. Ke- if they keep killing them eventually will people keep paying ransoms i don't know yeah it's a really hard thing to investigate but the fact that there's so many people who are disappeared and killed and found in these mass graves shows that migrants are being used for as long as they're useful to make money off them and then killed yeah. and the evidence not even hidden as a uh, in a way that cartels are scared of being discovered with this there more and more brazen yes yeah yeah let's move uh, in the last bit of time to talk about the present uh you mentioned about the the current president uh lopez obrador also known as amlo yes. right? his initials um that he was elected president in 2018 with a lot of hopes. He was from a liberal party, um, you know, that really was promising reform. But from what you've said and from what I've read, it sounds like the the changes have been very, very limited so far. And I, I, which is not a big surprise because I mean he's up against incredible forces. I mean, how, I mean, is, do you see him as as a only partially corrupt <laughs> figure as opposed to past? leaders no i don't see him as corrupt not corrupt at all okay i think him personally his track record has been as clean as you can get um compares clearly well in the mexican historical context where anyone who's been president or a public official has some uh, degree of corruption attached to them and also compares well with many politicians in the united states i hope don't don't get arrested for saying that (laughs) But him personally uh, cannot resolve all of the issues that we've been talking about. Um, but I don't. It's not him not being corrupt. That's really the question. Well, first of all, as you said, it's what he inherited is so huge, such a huge problem that it cannot be resolved in the short space of time of a presidency. Mexican presidency lasts for six years, so we might expect a fair amount. And it's one term. Yes, Mm -hmm. uh, but Mexico doesn't allow for the re-election of presidents. There's a constitutional principle, just allows for one term, but it's a six-year term. So what you can do in six years, if you have support within Congress, because you have to pass legislation, so your party has to have a majority in Congress, which he has had and still has, Uh, diminished a bit this June with the midterm elections, but still he has a majority in Congress, is to pass legislation to create new initiatives for the longer haul. 
So his campaign promise was to try and address the root causes of why people would be involved in the drug trade to begin with, which goes back to opportunities for young people, education and jobs. So the AMLO government, Morena, has instituted those kinds of programs and they're operating throughout the country. Critics would say it's kind of window dressing, it doesn't really make a, much of an impact. And there might be something to that. We do need more in the way of an uncorrupt police force and the following up on this effort to provide investigations of the crimes that we're referring to, particularly disappearances. Now, would he be in danger if he pushed too hard? I mean, of being assassinated? That's a good question. I think you know, as, as a president, you would expect he would be somewhere in the most protected place you could imagine, with all of the security that anyone could, could hope for. I think it, it's more at the level of civil society and journalists and ordinary people who try and critique and resist the cartels that we see obviously the most violence. But in between those two, between the presidents of the Republic and local community members and journalists and so on, there are candidates of political parties who have been targeted because they've either refused to say that they will align themselves with a particular cartel because there are many rivalries between cartels and splinters of cartels at the local level for control over the trade and other routes. So in this past election cycle, the campaigns for the midterm elections which were held in June of 2021, the campaigns began in September, I believe it was, when candidates started to be announced. The campaigns got in earnest in January this year. But there were close to 100 assassinations of candidates and staffers mm -hmm. throughout the country. And that just sends shockwaves through, it creates fear of anyone who may want to question. Or, or anyone who may want to run in the future. <laughs> exactly, it, um, just for being a journalist or for being yeah. an independent researcher or for being a politician who may try and do something different for your community by standing up to the cartels, it's, it can be a life and death question. Yeah. So here's the, uh, the last question. It kind of amazes to me to how little Mexico is in the news nationally in the United States. I mean, given that it's right here uh, and the situation is so dire. I, I don't know if, it seems to me that most Americans don't really appreciate how dire the situation is. And I, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe because the situation in the United States is dire. It's because it's dire. <laughs> we can only deal with so much direness in one day. I guess so. No, I think it goes back to a sense that, you know, the focus of much of the American public and American media is on things American. And it's, yeah. and it's become even more so in the past several years. And there are serious things to be spending time learning about and being oh, informed it, about in the United States. Well, New Mexico affects us so much, I mean... Uh, absolutely, gosh. absolutely. Um, but is that kind of curious border in knowledge between what goes on within the US and anywhere else? It's almost as though 
the US is a little island yeah. in a world of mayhem and chaos and as and that leads to this idea that the only way to respond to Mexico is building a wall and that's not what I want listeners to go away with today right. thinking well because it doesn't work anyway right <laughs> clearly mean, you have to help help solve the situation is clearly better. it's not neither is the war on drugs yeah. and neither has this returning asylum seekers to uh, what we know are various dangerous mm. conditions right. and the only way forward I think is cooperation yeah. solidarity understanding uh, because what happens in Mexico certainly affects the United States Okay, I think we'll take that as the final statement of the interview. Uh, I think it's well said. Uh, so thank you so much for coming, Dr. Neil Harvey, professor in the government department at NMSU. It's been a pleasure having you uh, on Delving In. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.